This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Paul Barclay. This is Big Ideas. Ideas about gender are changing, and it not only affects how many people see themselves. For members of the LGBTI community, it means the difference between the access to or the denial of rights. It means discrimination, and it can even be a question of life or death. I know there are different names, but the panellists use the term LGBTI, so I'll stick with that. This discussion brings together Tamara Adrian, a trans lawyer and congresswoman in the Venezuelan National Assembly. Julia Ert, the Executive Director of the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association, ILGA World, and activist and Professor of Transgender Studies, Susan Stryker. They're addressing how gender can be understood as an artefact of the biocentrism that structures the modern worldview, and the need to do away with the concept of identity and identity politics. Employing concepts around intersectionality can and probably will be a key tool in order to do that. And the other thing I think is as well to figure out a way how to bring in allies and other people in society into our own struggles. And, you know, sensibilizing them that even if you're not an LGBTI person, there is a benefit for society to treat LGBTI people or actually any other minority in a decent and equal way. That is kind of the task of this century, probably. The panellists also analysed the backlash of the global anti-gender movement, its political nature, funding and dissemination. We hear firstly from Tamara Adrian with experiences from Latin America, then from Julia Ert with the US perspective, and then from Susan Stryker commenting on Germany. There is no better place in the entire world to say what I have to say. We're in Berlin. I'm going to talk in a parable. I will say that once upon a time, many, 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 many years ago, there was a country that was divided in two. People from one side built a wall. And in this particular case, what they did was to put men in one side and women in the other side. The people from the male side rule not only their side, but the other side. But those who were in the woman's side could not go to the men's side, nor those who were in the men's side could go to the women's side. Then this wonderful idea came out of the mind of some subversive people that say, hey, listen, why don't we fall apart this, this wall and let us all be together and come from one side to the other without restrictions? And that happened. And the result was that in that city, anyone could stand, live, or move to the place where he or she want. And the moral of all this is that those all have existed because the patriarchal system created them 
and we are here to think how and when might we contribute to destroy this wall. The fact is that in Argentina, uh, travestis, which is a political category to, to talk about, as well as in, in Brazil or Uruguay, sometimes in Chile, to talk about trans people, they used to say, no somos peligrosas, estamos en peligro. We are not dangerous people, we are in danger. And I will change that. I know that the political reason for that was to, to put the focus on the fact that uh, they were killed, they did not have any kind of protection for the human rights, etc., 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 all the things that we know. In this case, the but is that what I think is that, yes, we are dangerous people. We are dangerous. We are so hugely dangerous that we are now the primary target of the patriarchal system to be destroyed. Think about that. And why? Because somehow we are missiles below the flotation line of the patriarchal system. By being ourselves, we are able to question the binary that supports the whole patriarchal system, which is based in the biological division and therefore the behavioral attitudes associated to masculinity and femininity. That's all what we know. But with our soul existence and together with the intersex people, we challenge this binary. If you are able to transit, if you are able to express yourself, if you are able to move from one side of the city to the other side of the city or whatever you want to be. There is the key of how to destroy this wall. And that's why we, with our soul existence, are so dangerous. Think a little bit about how are we target now in many countries. Not the traditional way we were targeted, which was denial of rights, denial of clinical and health services, denial of security. Now we are targeted by questioning and objecting the very core of the system, which is the idea of gender those social constructs that are associated with masculinity or femininity or whatever, about all the things that we know. By targeting this system, they talk about gender ideology, this is an ideology, they have many, many recourses in order to confront and object the existence of gender identity and the existence of gender. But, but they are also questioning sexual and reproductive rights as well, women's rights, the right to be educated in sexual reproductive matters, and all the intersectionalities that might occur with race, with Aboriginal origins, with disabilities, with any other exclusionary cause. And within this context, and I finish with this, our task is to illustrate people 
and to make these people be part of those that take a hammer in their hands in order to make this wall fall apart. Thank you. So I come from an activist background. I speak from the context of a community organizer, which I've been for the last almost 20 years in very, very different contexts. I work for ILGA World, and maybe it's worthwhile to have a quick introduction of what ILGA World is and does. ILGA World is the global LGBTI network of organizations. So we have 1,700 member organizations in 160-something states on the planet. We're kind of the only global membership-based network, and we do global-level advocacy and research and work with our members. And I think that's the positionality that I will be speaking from. And in a certain way, what I'm going to say is that myself as being the ED at ILGA World, first trans ED, first woman ED we ever had, I think this positionality kind of reflects where we are in the global LGBTI movement to a certain degree. What I mean by that is that I believe, looking at the history of the trans movement over the last, let's say, 20 years, we're probably now at a certainly kind of unique position in time where trans representation and trans issues are receiving a level of attention that has been unprecedented in the last decades. And don't get me wrong, trans people still continue to be immensely discriminated. We face violence in all places on the planet, in all aspects of our lives. But still, trans persons have never had this level of representation, neither in the LGBTI movement, nor in political or other advocacy processes. So let me speak a couple of minutes on how we got there, because that was fundamentally not the case, maybe even five, but certainly not 10 years ago, when the, what we call today as the LGBTI movement was a lot more fractured and a lot more driven by internal exclusions and discrimination, not only of trans people, but on grounds of gender identity, on grounds of sex characteristics, in regard to geography, in regard to the place of women in the movement, etc. I think 10, 20 years ago, our movement was at a very, very different positionality than we are now. And I think what has contributed to this shift are three things, three key things that have contributed to this shift over the last 20 years. One, let's start from the trans movement. When we look and here I'm going to speak from a very European point of view because I used to be a European trans organizer for a, a very long time. So when we look back 15, maybe even 10 years ago, trans issues in Europe were discussed through a medical lens. Like it was considered a medical issue by politicians, by anyone working in the field, by any, certainly by medical practitioners, but even by trans people themselves. And I think what has changed over the last 15 years was that there happened a paradigm shift of making the case that issues pertaining to gender identity are human rights issues. That discussing trans issues, issues pertaining to gender identity through a medical lens is taking a wrong and actually human rights violating starting point. And that understanding had to be built both among decision makers and politicians, but it has as well had to be built in our own movement. In order to come to a human rights approach in our own movement, we did not have to only educate politicians and policymakers and medical practitioners. We did have to make the, the case in our own movement. 
And I think we've successfully done that in the last years and solidly enshrined gender identity in human rights context. So that's one development. Development number two, when we look at the wider LGBTI movement, I think it's safe to state that 20 years ago, the wider LGBTI movement was following much more often what I would call an assimilist agenda than a human rights-based agenda. And an assimilist agenda meaning, or kind of is a representation of the argument, what I do at home, in my private bedroom, with whomever I have sex, is of no one's business. So during the day, gay and lesbian people can blend in, and what, what we do kind of in our bedroom is not of any concern. It's a fundamental different approach than saying we have the right to be ourselves, to be ourselves, to love whom we love, versus to it's of no one's business what we do at, at our homes. And I think that was another shift in the wider LGBTI movement that occurred over the last 20 years, moving away from this kind of assimilist, no one's business type of argument to a Again, a human rights-based argument saying we have the right to be who we are and do what we want to do as long as it's consensual and you know, doesn't violate the rights of others. So another development that you know, led to a larger awareness of human rights violations within our own communities, which could not longer ignore. Because if you're trying to make a human rights argument in a political debate, you can't violate those very same human rights within your own community. So it gave a lot of flesh or emphasis to the fact or the need that within our own wider LGBTI communities, we need to be more inclusive. And then number three, the concept of intersectionality. So coined by black feminists who basically said a black woman does not only face the discrimination of a woman and a black person, but faces a different level of discriminations kind of combined. And I think that was, from a legal point of view and from an activist point of view as black fem in black feminism, a very, very kind of crucial and important concept, which easily translates to other contexts around looking at how discrimination on grounds of geography or ethnicity intersects with sexual orientation, or how race intersects with disability, or disability intersects with gender identity. And I think this very powerful concept was a third pillar that brought us in, our, in the LGBTI movement and the feminist movement to where we are today. Because again, this concept of intersectionality coined by black feminists is very applicable to the work that feminist, wider feminist movements and LGBTI movements do. So, and that brings us to where we are today in an LGBTI movement that is a much more aware of our own internal shortfalls of actually being truly intersectional, of being aware that our work needs to be more feminist and feminist work needs to intersect with LGBTI advocacy at the same level, and that all of that needs to root in a human rights-based approach. This is where we progressed over the last 20 years, which brings us to today. But all of that, in a certain way as well, comes at a cost. It comes at a cost because the narrative around gender identity, the simple fact that there's people who transgress physical gender, or even the notion of a binary gender system, is a very strong and very powerful one. And one that creates fear among a large group of 
persons in society. And because our movements come together much more closely, feminist movement, LGBTI movements, intersex movements, come together much more closely, I think our opponents, who have been opposing gender equality, well, for a century at least, um, who have been opposing LGBTI equality for a lot of decades, have identified that these narratives that brings us together makes us as well vulnerable. Because what our opponents, i.e. the anti-gender, anti-rights movements, very skillfully employ is the fact that there are generic fault lines within our movements that I've explained. I mean, fault lines around questions of who is a woman, fault lines uh, between how are women represented in LGBTI organizations, and our kind of the anti-rights and anti-gender actors employ the, these fault lines by trying to emphasize those within our own movements, which makes us, you know, weaker if we let ourselves divide. So that's one aspect. But then there's another aspect of that, because it's not only that our opponents are trying to weaken us by, by dividing us, they as well use these type of narratives in order to generate political momentum in the conservative spectrum. And I think actually the, the abortion question in the US is a very good example of how abortion, or the right to abortion, has been used in order to polarize a whole society. I think these days, if you're a Democrat, it's almost impossible to be against the right to abortion, when if you're a Republican in the US, it's almost impossible to be in, in favor of abortion. And it's this polarization that can as well be used when it comes to LGBTI issues. And for example, here in Europe, we've been seeing that in, happening in Poland, we've been seeing that in, happening in Hungary, where mainstream conservative actors specifically use LGBTI issues in order to gain political momentum from their own constituency, going as far as what I would call weaponize our issues in order for their own political gains. And again, that is an issue that targets us on the surface, but it runs way deeper within our society. And I think we need a response to those cyber narratives that are broad-based and cross-cutting within our society. Because at the end of the day, those movements are trying to attack the rule of law and democracy, which has to be defended every day again and again and again. And I think we need to be aware of that. I'm on the panel today to, I think, represent the U.S. And I just want to say how already I feel nostalgic for the idea that there is a civil society that might positively recognize you as a trans person. And, you know, I also continue to take um, inspiration from the kind of work that Tamara does in, in Venezuela, which is a place that, you know, has had its challenges in recent years. And the idea of your hopefulness in that situation is actually quite inspiring to somebody who feels like they live in a country that um, is lurching into the abyss right now. So what about the now? I think it's really important to note exactly how many laws there are on the, you know, being proposed in the U.S. right now, something like 300, 321 the last I, I looked in the different jurisdictions that are trying to criminalize or oppress trans people in some ways. Most of these are not, they haven't been voted on, they haven't been debated. Some that have been proposed have been 
voted down or they've been vetoed by the governor. But still, there is just a tremendous amount of anti-trans legal activity in the US. And if you haven't been paying attention for, you know, because you don't live there, you know, some of the things that are happening is that doctors could be charged with felonies for providing care to trans youth. Parents could have their children taken away from them for like raising them in a gender affirming way. It's basically becoming criminalized to transition before you're a legal adult. Trans women and girls are not allowed to participate in um, women's sports. I mean, the list goes on and on and on right now. I think the more disturbing part of some of this, it's, it's some of the same um, concern I have around the abortion debate, is that some of the mechanisms that are being put in place to enforce these anti-trans or you know, anti-female new laws you know, that are being passed, laws against reproductive freedom, is that the laws are essentially deputizing vigilante activism uh, among the population. It's not like the, that the state is saying, we're going to enforce these you know, penalties against you, that the state is actually telling private citizens that it will pay them a bounty to report on the crime, the crime of transitioning while young, the crime of raising a child in a gender-affirming way, the crime of performing an abortion or helping someone to, to get an abortion. And so it's just such a powerful erosion of um, civil society that we are experiencing right now. And I, you know, I wish I could say that I was hopeful. And I cannot actually say that I am hopeful for what will be going on in the US in the next couple of years. So not just the Roe v. Wade decision overturning uh, right to abortion, but um, limiting the ability of the states to regulate who can own and carry a gun in public. There was a, another, uh, another decision passed called the McGirt decision about the rights of sovereign indigenous tribes to exercise sovereignty in their own territory without having to sort of share jurisdictional authority with the federal government. Um, again, like, you know, an erosion of that. The Supreme Court said that the Environmental Protection Agency doesn't have the regulatory authority to like protect the environment. The interpretation of the law was that a government agency run by bureaucrats who are not elected cannot devise and implement policy and enforce that, that that has to be the decision of the elected legislature. So basically, it becomes the basis for any regulatory apparatus that capital doesn't want can just be ignored. That's basically the implication of that. When I think about the hereafter of the here and now, I think that we in the United States really have to pay attention to the idea that, that you know, the, the state will not save you, the law will not save you, that that's not the direction that activism needs to go right now. You know, I'm, I'm on the left, you know, I would say, you know, well, has the U.S. ever been free? You know, it's like, it's like, you know, it is a country that is predicated on settlement, the claiming of indigenous land, genocidal practices, enslavement, racial enslavement. 
you know, it's a capitalist country, it oppresses the poor and the working class, that's always been there. But coupled with that was a civil society where there was a rhetoric of liberal democracy and freedom and the activism among the people was to expand that sphere and to secure those civil rights and human rights for people who were formally excluded from it. And I just wonder, like, what will it be when we say, it's like the goal of our activism is not to win a more expansive civil society, that civil society is closing down for you. And so I think about being trans, who is in the room with me, so to speak, as a white trans person who's part of the settler population in North America? Who's in the same boat with me? Like, who else is being attacked? Who else is being targeted? And when I look what's being targeted by the wave of repression that is taking root in the U.S. right now, at some level, I think what it all comes down to is that we are at the the end game, you know, we're in the end stages of a game of identity politics and of biopolitics that ultimately comes out of the, we call it the Black Atlantic. It's like the, the, the idea of the ideologies and beliefs that underpin Eurocentric modernity and the sort of the European-centered world, world order, the colonial order that it's predicated on certain beliefs about the meanings of biological difference, you know, the, the binary that undergirds, you know, heteropatriarchal capitalism. And that at some level, all of these targeted groups, it's like at some level problematize the way we think bodies mean and are organized and ranked and classified and hierarchized in Eurocentric society. And that what I find hopeful about transness, you know, is that it's not, it's not just another minority, like a racial minority, or it's not just, it's not a sex, I would say, but that it's a practice, a social practice, a belief that what we are told our bodies mean can come to mean otherwise. It's like, just because this is my biology, just because I do have you know, this color skin or that shape of genitals or have this reproductive capacity, that that is not like a, a prison that like locks me into a place in a social order. It's like the meaning of the body can change. What difference means can change. That is something that we can do. We can make our bodies and our lives mean differently in relationship to each other. You know, regardless of what the law says, like that is something that we can do and that is where I find hope in how we imagine how we can all be different kinds of creatures here in the late Anthropocene in a way that is like actually more survivable for us and better for the planet and that, you know, I don't know that we'll make it, honestly, you know, but I feel that's the direction that hope lies. And I'm going to end here with like a little aphorism or I'll just say coming out more and more about this in my own life as somebody who like regularly uses psychedelics and that I think it's a, for me, it's a very positive thing. And I was on a little chemical excursion not too long ago where this banner appeared in my mind's eye that said the meaning of life is to experience joy 
as we move towards death. And I think that's actually really true. It's like, I will stick by that. Thank you, chemical teacher. And that's the hopeful thing that I want to say. It's like we can find joy with each other as we struggle. Susan Stryker and before her, Tamara Adrian and then Julia Ayrt, talking about how life for people in the transgender community is changing for better and for worse. They're now joined by moderator Moira Freidinger from Yale University. What I've heard in that discussion here was actually quite a positive outlook from Julia, a positive outlook that was based on human rights. With Susan and Damara, I'm not so sure. How do you place development of artificial intelligence and data colonialism into that whole um, gender discussion? That's one aspect. And also how far, that's probably more directed to Tamara and Susan, how far do we get with human rights? Human rights are really important to advocate for if you don't have them. But it's just like I've, I've never been a fan of the rights framework because I think it implies that it's something that is given to you rather than something that you have. You know, if the state or some entity giveth rights, they can taketh away. And so, you know, for me, I'm much more interested in a framework where it's like I'm asserting, thinking about it as asserting autonomy in community with people rather than making an appeal to some kind of regulatory or co coercive apparatus to give me something as like a, as a property, just like I, I resist the framework. I will have a different approach. Social changes and political changes sometimes occur and what you can do sometimes is only acknowledge the existence of the change and then see how you can control the bad outcomes that necessarily will be coming from these changes. But to pose the sole existence of those changes, I think it's useless. So artificial intelligence is like exactly not my field of expertise. However, um, I think it's well established that artificial intelligence, you know, reproduces gender bias and gender norms. What I find surprising is that people are surprised by that. So why? I mean, I do have a background in mathematics and artificial intelligence at the end of the day is only um, a sophisticated way of analyzing data. So the outcome of that is only as good as the data you put in. And I mean, the data comes from a patriarchal misogynist system at the end of the day, because this is the societies that we live in. So hence, the artificial intelligence output is only as good as the, is the input. So it can't be gender neutral or biased. So I'm really surprised why people believe that artificial intelligence was neutral, non-biased. And I mean, the argument that, well, it's a computer, so it only uses logic, and may fall so short of what artificial intelligence actually is, that, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised by that. How far do we get with human rights framework? So you know I'm a human rights activist, so what should I say? I think it's a very good tool, but it has its severe limitations, like its severe limitations. Because in a certain way, for advancing LGBTI rights, I believe it has been actually a pretty good tool. But changing you know, laws is relatively easy. I mean, we sometimes don't think it is because it actually is quite hard. But if you compare it to actual shifting social perceptions of things, changing laws is very easy. And changing laws in a human rights framework or not can always and only be the first step towards equality and 
true equal social participation. So in a certain way, the limitation of using a human rights framework is that it's only step one in a process in which a lot of other steps need to follow. The reason why I've been in the LGBTI movement, I've been very successful in using a human rights framework, is because the violations have been so drastic against members of our communities. The level of rights infringements that we see on a global scale towards LGBTI movements, and that's across the board, is just so insanely drastic that it continues to be a good tool in many, many jurisdictions. In some, I think it starts to reach its limitations where social developments need to follow what you know, a human rights framework kind of proposes. But in many jurisdictions, if you look globally, I mean, 69 countries criminalized on grounds of sexual orientation, 13 have the death penalty. I mean, that's such a drastic human rights violation that the human rights framework in these situations actually carries a long way. I think what I'm saying is kind of it depends. To address the AI part of the question, and I agree with everything that you say, it's, it's good to have tools you know, to advance human rights, but I, I guess part of my confession is that just like I've never been that enamored of the concept of the human. I think the human is subtended with so many forms of racial and species exclusion that reproduces violence against many forms of, of life. As a person who has felt like as trans, I am abjected as less than human, that it's like, why do I want to fight my way into a club that doesn't want to have me? You know, it's like, isn't there a better way? Isn't there like a better way to be than to be what human has meant. And so when I think about AI from that level, I mean, AI is such a big, you know, hot button topic right now. And I think we mean different things when we say AI. And when we say AI and we mean like some kind of, you know, algorithm connected to the surveillance state and big data and data extraction and all of that. I mean, it's like, yes, that's bad. That's just another kind of mining. You know, it's part of an extractive economy and a surveillance culture. But if we think about AI as um, the ask the philosophical question, it's like, can a machine have sentience? Can it have consciousness? Does it exist in a way that we recognize as being like us? You know, it's like, maybe that's not here right now, but it, is it coming? And I think about like, well, what's my relationship to a sentient AI? Like, do I want to make kin and community with it. It's like, is it just going to be the Terminator? Or is it going to be like, oh, you are another arrangement of materiality that has self-awareness of itself, and I want to be in alliance with you somehow against the systems that would deny us our ability to be sentient and autonomous. And just like sometimes we need to make common cause with, you know, with the monsters. I want to hear from the three of you, what gives you the more despair? What gives you the more sense of urgency? What are the things that you feel are the most pressing concerns right now in your own context? Maybe it's in the academic context for Susan, maybe it's in the activist context for Yulia, maybe it's in the political context for Tamara. I always try to, to divide what is urgent from the, what is needed, what is uh, most necessary. And I think coming from Latin America, I guess in this moment, Latin America notwithstanding being one of the most unequalitarian 
continents from the practical point of view, from the economical point of view. Nonetheless, we have achieved for about uh, 80 to 90 percent of the population uh, equality for LGBTI people under the law. That means that, uh, I don't know if you know it, but uh, together with Europe, probably the highest number of countries that had achieved LGBTI equality are located in Latin America. Equal marriage. Most of these countries have co-maternity, co-adoption, and all the other protections for the family at large. Recognition of gender identity without any pathologizing requirements. You just go to the civil registry officer and they issue a new birth certificate with your desired gender, or not, in this case, sex and name, and new documents. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights decided that, one, the recognition of gender identity for trans people is a right under the Inter-American Convention of Human Rights. Two, that equal marriage is a right under the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights and the protection of those rights, it's a duty of the states. Whatever they do with, with that decision, that's another matter. Therefore, from, from this point of view, you have the right to be optimistic. But at the same time, the risks for reversal are there. The presence, very active presence of very fundamentalist groups coming from the Catholic Church acting together with neo-Pentecostal churches. There is a risk of reversal. It's starting to spread all around the region. And the fact that we have come to a point in which 80 or more percent of the population has equal rights does not allow you to sit down in a comfortable chair to see the, the time passing by because you still have to fight in order to get those rights in those countries, including mine, and impeding the reversal in the other countries. So despair and urgency. I mean, you might have realized many people call me an optimist, so I don't tend to despair too much. However, <laughs> when I do despair is when I think of the persons, the members of, you know, of our communities and women who are violated in every day of their lives facing violence among family members, everywhere in their lives, everywhere where they go, from the state, from persons in the street, and then having to sit in these human rights mechanisms in Geneva, in hearing state actors arguing that all of this is not even existing or not even a problem, which sometimes, you know, comes with my job description, happens in these human rights mechanisms in Geneva that we work in. Yeah, these are times when it's really, really, really hard to not despair because we know what is happening on the ground. But then there's just usually these men sitting there and having the ability to completely ignore all the evidence that's on the table. And that is very, very difficult to bear at times. When it comes to urgency, in my remarks in the beginning, I was speaking about you know, what we call the anti-rights and anti-gender actors, which are highly dangerous for the communities that we serve, trans community as LGBTI communities. And I think there is a huge urgency in addressing those narratives, as I said in the beginning, in like a very cross-societal way. Because at the end of the day, 
while those narratives are tremendously damaging to trans people and to LGBTI people and to feminists, at the end of the day, this is not about trans or LGBTI people, it's about our democracies. And I think we'll have to find ways and defend our democracies better. And I think when we look at what happened in the US in the last years, when we look at what happens in some countries here in Europe, there is an urgent need to defend our democracies. And I mean, if you look at the countries on the planet, at the end of the day, the democracies are delivering much better in terms of safeguarding equality for all than the other countries. So I think democracy is our best bet that we have at the moment, and we need to collectively defend that. And I think that's the most urgent thing that's on the table. I would second that, that idea of defending democracy and like wanting to insist that it be, you know, really democratic, you know, like that. I think that's often where it falls down. You know, and I'd also want to second what you were saying about the anti-gender ideology, that it is a really pernicious narrative, that it's a conspiracy theory that like explains a lot of what's wrong in the world in some people's eyes and then makes trans people the scapegoats for it. And I do think some of the work that can come out of academia as well as out of, you know, creative arts and, you know, art practice communities and creative trans people is to come up with different narratives and practices that like jam that pernicious conspiracy theory, you know, that make it seem stupid, that show it to be not true, that give audiences, publics, a different way of understanding trans. You know, I, I don't think we're going to win arguments right now. You know, I don't think we're going to win court cases right now. But I think you can make people feel differently in how you present yourself to them and that there can be forms of collective action that actually have transformative power, at least at a local level, and that, you know, we just need to be doing the work to put out stories about lives that make all of our lives matter. So the panel has been a lot about rights frameworks, and that's important, but I'm also thinking about rights as in, like, protecting us from violence. It's something that has to, you know, come through a huge social change. What things do we do to go to the issues that actually create the violence? So I agree with you that, that what is needed is like a transformation of how we socially interact with people and that we change how people understand our bodies and identities as trans people. And I think we do that through interaction. You know, I don't think we do it alone. I think we do it collectively. We create safe spaces for ourselves. We create our networks where we're recognized and affirmed in our lives. We find ways of being imperceptible to the forces that would harm us, you know, and that we try to, you know, we, we figure out strategies for living that are affirmative. And if, like, you build those networks big enough and deep enough, then it's like, you know, hearts and minds change. But in the meantime, it's just a lot of work to do, and we've got really hard things to survive in the meantime. There's no program, you know, there's only that daily practice, I think, that creative practice of figuring out how to be new creatures with each other. Uh, again, I don't know if I am a little bit pessimistic on that. 
although I have been always attracted by utopic thinking, but I think in the current moment, the lessons of this history are not so favorable. For instance, the abolition of slavery and racial equality had been achieved long time ago in many countries, and notwithstanding racism resists to the change. But I will finish with a positive comment. It's that uh, notwithstanding that, uh, utopian societies might be created and might be achieved. I'm quite conflicted by the question, I think. Because on the one hand, of course, there are serious limitations in the law and in rights. And the end goal should never be to have a, you know, rights, a certain rights framework, but the goal always is, what Susan has alluded to, that you know, to change hearts and minds of people because true equality is not going to come through rights. And I mean, you could as well argue, when we look at gender equality, I think equality between women and men in one shape or the other is enshrined in almost every constitution of all countries in this planet. Almost all. For decades it's been there. Have you got it? Of course not. So that as well, you know, you could argue that shows a severe limitations in a rights-based approach, and I think that is very, very true. On the other hand, I as well believe that a rights-based approach gives us a tool at hand to speak truth to power, to hold systems or persons who have power to account. And that is as well a very powerful tool in order to protect those who are vulnerable. Again, it's been documented in like plenty of research that those legal and rights tools very often fail to protect the most marginalized which is another severe limitation of a rights framework very often, and again speaks to the need to change hearts and minds in order to not having to employ those legal frameworks and rights because they're like failing half of the population in the first place. However, at the same time, I as well do believe that they're like a necessary tool in order to restrict persons with power to restrict people who are violent. Can I quickly add something to that? I think there is a battleground right now which is becoming very important that concerns your question, which is primary education and how the systems of education reinstate all the patriarchal norms that you're talking about that are <laughs> ingrained in the ways in which we act and we believe who we are. And to me, what is very disturbing right now is that kindergarten and primary education have become a target to, for instance, eliminate something that we consider should be there, for instance, sex education, right? There's, this happened in Florida, but right now in Buenos Aires, my hometown, there has been a new city decree banishing or pro prohibiting the use of inclusive language, right? And this is in the in primary school system. So for me, that's a battleground. I actually have several questions from the chat. So there's one question from Priscilla. With the increase and advance of anti-democratic movements around the world, where do you all see the fight for non-medicalized trans childhoods going? And the second question from Rina, is identity a useful concept for the change you are looking for? I too have my questions about identity. I think it's one of those, those things that where whether we like identity or not, it is one of the grounds that we have to struggle on because we live in a society that is organized around 
the classification of our bodies to like give us a certain social or civic or legal identity. And so whether or not we like it, that is in fact how power is organized and it is where we need to struggle, you know, to like make it work for you as well as you can or to overthrow it and think of a different way of being alive and being social. In a utopian way, it's like, yes, let's imagine in this prefigurative sense, like how we could be together without predicating those interactions on our identities. And meanwhile, we need to like move through those categories somehow, make them work differently. I think as a concept historically, it has had its use Identity is a very, very powerful community organizing tool, in particular when it comes to LGBTI persons. Our identities have the ability to bridge other gaps and fault lines that our societies have in order to fight for a common cause. But at the same time, it has severe limitations that very often are outright ignored because as a concept per se, it produces exclusions. There's like no way to construct or, or, or create identity and community without excluding someone else. And that by default poses a problem when we want to achieve equality in our societies. That 20 years ago, the LGBTI movement was much more fractured than it is today. I think that as well was a consequence of very, very strong identity politics because those fault lines that we saw 20 years ago were carved along the fault lines of identity. And I mean, there were a severe limitations in organizing holistically within our communities. At the same time as this can be a very, very powerful tool in, in community organizing or in rights advocacy, it has its you know, severe limitations that need to be addressed. And from a practical point of view, you know, having been in community organizing spaces for a very long time, I can say it is very difficult. It's hard because you need to find a way how to organize and unite people around issues. And issues are very much more difficult to relate to than identity is because an issue is kind of an, more of a thought concept, whereas identity is more of an emotional concept that allows people to relate. And if we want to get away from this whole concept of organizing around identity politics, we'll need to figure out a way how to bring the issue forward and diminish the role of identity. Employing concepts around intersectionality can and probably will be a key tool in order to do that. And the other thing I think is as well to figure out a way how to bring in allies and other people in society into our own struggles. And, you know, sensibilizing them that, you know, even if you're not an LGBTI person, there is a benefit for society to treat LGBTI people or actually any other minority you know, in a decent and equal way. That is kind of the task of this century probably. Coming to the non-medical approaches for trans care, particularly in children, I think non-medical approaches to trans care as well as non-medical approaches to trans identities in the first place kind of are the future. If we look at the progression of how trans persons in the Western world, I have to say, constructed their own being, I think we have progressed a long way from constructing our identities through a very binary and medical lens to something that is much more liberal and less restrictive. And I mean, if you, you know, 
think that through to the end, I think the future lies in trans people that not necessarily construct their own selves through medical care in the first place. And I think if you look at the involvement of the non-binary movement, all of that kind of speaks to such type of a concept. As I often say, nobody wants to be a, a trans person. You realize it. At the same time, other people realize that they are girls or boys. You realize that, except that your body is not in accordance with that conviction. And you, you know it very soon, by three or four years old. And to attack trans children, it's so awful. And to, to try to impede them to be themselves is so awful that I fight it a lot in order to, to change this. What could be done collectively towards the pinkwashing of regimes? On the pinkwashing, so thanks for that question, because pinkwashing, not only among states, but you know, among all kinds of actors, including corporates and the private sector, is a serious problem. And I think it speaks to the problem of siloing rights and approaches. Pinkwashing is only possible when we allow that actors, be it states or corporates or civil society for that matter, think of rights framework in silos, of thinking that you know, rights for some parts of the population are independent of the rights of someone else. That's when pinkwashing works, because then we can focus on you know, LGBTI rights or LGBTI issues and ignore all the other human rights violations. And that is exactly how it should not be. We need to take an intersectional approach and be aware of that rights of one group can never be promoted or diminished at the expense of someone else. If something like that you know, is observed or happens, it needs to be called out. And I think that's something that can collectively be done, be it in the context of states, but as well in many other contexts. Tamara Adrian, Julia Ayrt and Susan Stryker with moderator Moira Fradinger speaking at the American Academy in Berlin. Our thanks to them for this recording. I'm Paul Barclay. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.